Well, there are certain dates on our calendars that can crank up the stress levels, the exam that you feel unprepared for, the interview for the new job, the upcoming doctor's appointments, the public speaking engagements, the fast approaching wedding day, the dreaded high school reunion. You know, we all have those future events that cast a shadow over our present day. Well, today we finish up our sermon series on the book of First Thessalonians. So if you're just joining us, First Thessalonians is a letter that was written to, by the Apostle Paul. And it was written to a church in an ancient city called Thessalonica. And this church was full of people who'd recently become Christians. And so there were matters of the Christian faith that they were uninformed about. And one of those things was the return of Jesus. So this church, they knew Jesus was coming back. They didn't know when, but it was on their mental calendar, so to speak. Yet this future day was stressing them out. They were anxious, concerned. And so Paul wrote this letter, 1 Thessalonians, to reassure them. He didn't want them to worry or stress out about this upcoming day, but he did want them to be prepared. And so throughout this letter, Jesus' return, Jesus' second coming, is a major theme. So let me just show that to you very quickly. So just flip back to chapter one. Right at the end of chapter one there, Paul mentions how the Thessalonians, in verse nine, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now look at chapter two, verse 19. Paul mentions there the coming of our Lord Jesus. Or chapter three, verse 13. Paul points forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Or look at chapter four, verse 15. Again, Paul speaks of the coming of the Lord. In chapter five, verse two, he mentions the day of the Lord, which is kind of another way of saying the, the return of Jesus. And in our passage this morning, in chapter five, verse 24, he talks again of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the church is waiting for the coming of Jesus. This is a day that's on our calendars. On our day, the Bible says, Jesus will make all things new. Sin and death will be destroyed. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. For those who belong to Jesus, who've had their sins paid for by his blood, there'll be joy and glory. For those outside of Jesus, for those who don't know Jesus, there'll be wrath and judgments. But for those who are in Jesus, in Christ, there'll be none of that. There'll be joy and glory. Therefore, the Thessalonians, they have absolutely nothing to fear. But this raises a question, what now? So what are they supposed to be doing as they wait for this future day on their calendar? What should characterize God's people as they wait for the coming of Jesus? Well, throughout the letter, Paul has repeatedly mentioned a triad of, of virtues. 
three virtues that should characterize God's people as they wait for the coming of Jesus. Those virtues are faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. So he mentions faith, love, and hope together in chapter one, verse three. He mentions them again together in chapter five, verse eight. But really these virtues dominate the letter. Faith's mentioned eight times, love is mentioned seven times, hope is mentioned four times. How should Christians prepare for the coming of Jesus? What should characterize us as we wait for his return? Well, Paul says we're to cultivate faith, love, and hope. These virtues are really the drumbeat of First Thessalonians. And that brings us to our passage this morning in chapter five. At first glance, it just appears to be this like hodgepodge of commands, almost like a religious to-do list. However, I think if we listen carefully, we hear a familiar drumbeat. It's the drumbeat of faith, love, and hope. So that's going to be our outline this morning. I've actually put the outline in your handouts for you. Don't usually do that, but I thought it'd be helpful since there's a few sub points and it might help you follow along. So we're going to start with love in chapter 12, in verses 12 to 15, love. Then we're going to talk about faith in verses 16 to 22. And then we're going to talk about hope in verses 23 to 24. All right, let's begin with love in verses 12 to 15. God's people are to be characterized by love. But who are we to love exactly? Well, first of all, we're to love our church leaders. Look at verses 12 to 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, Paul doesn't use the word church leader here or even pastor. However, that's clearly who he's referring to. You know, in preparation this week, I thought, man, it's going to be a little bit weird talking about these verses. What's the most artful way of telling people they need to respect and love me more? You know, it just seems so self-serving, doesn't it? But actually, I think this misses Paul's point. These words are not written solely for the benefit of pastors like me. Paul wants us to love our church leaders because it's actually good for the whole church. So when we make the pastor's work a joy, the entire church benefits. Conversely, when we don't respect or love our leaders, the whole church suffers. So let's just briefly see what Paul has to say here. He tells us three things about pastors. First of all, he tells us pastors work hard. Look again at verse 12. Paul tells us respect, or we might say honor, those who labor among you. The Greek word for labor there has the sense of hard work, sweat-induced toil. The work of a pastor is tiring, difficult, exhausting. Now, this is surprising to many people. I've lost, I've lost count of how many times people assume we only work on Sundays. I remember, I remember meeting with a church member. Uh, it was a while back now, but the conversation went like this. So Mike, what do you do? And I was like, well, I'm a pastor. I'm your pastor, actually. <laughs> oh, is that your job? Yeah, it's my job. Oh, okay, so is, is that like part-time or something? No, nope, it's full-time. Oh, really? Wow. So like, what do you actually do? It was a humbling experience. If you're wondering who that was, it was Heidi. 
Just kidding, it was not. You know, we, we don't necessarily associate being a pastor with hard work, but Paul just seems to assume that pastors will labor and toil for the gospel. So the word he uses here in the Greek language, it, it actually has this, it's the same word he uses for the work of farmers who plant and plow and harvest. He, use, he also uses the illustrations of, of, a, of an athlete and a soldier to describe the work of pastors in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now, let me just state the obvious here. There is an awkwardness about a pastor having a point in his sermon about how hard pastors work. But I actually think this is a great opportunity for me to commend the pastors that I serve alongside. So at our church, we have three pastors who don't get paid. So Marty, Scott, and Will. They work normal, full-time jobs. So Marty's a business manager. Scott's an architect. Will is a lawyer. They have families and other responsibilities. They have full and tiring lives. But on top of all that, they're pastors. That means they regularly attend pastors' meetings at 6 a.m. in the morning before they even start work. They meet with church members in the week. They show hospitality. They devote time to pray for you all. They prepare to teach the Bible or lead things like music. They make phone calls and send texts and write emails to check in on you all. They help carry people's burdens and, and so much more. And they do it all joyfully because they love Jesus and they love you. Mike McKinley and Seth Wachtel are two pastors that do get paid that I work with. And I've worked with these guys for nearly 10 years. And let me tell you, they work hard. They spend hours every week preparing to teach God's word so, so that they can teach it well to you and me. They labor in prayer, they, they visit people in need, they plan and organize and facilitate. They train people for ministry, they support our missionaries, they open up their homes, they walk with people through incredible suffering. They patiently help people who are stuck in sin and slow to change. This week, Seth's job required him to go to the DMV I mean, if that's not worth our love and respect, I don't know what is. <laughs> Mike and Seth toil and struggle doing gospel ministry, but they do it all because they love Jesus and they love you. And hopefully that encourages you all this morning. So pastors work hard. Secondly, pastors humbly lead. Look at verse 12 again. Paul says, pastors are over you in the Lord. Again, the Greek word here that Paul uses has the sense of authority, oversight, leadership. Now this makes many of us nervous. After all, modern people were suspicious of authority, aren't we? We're especially suspicious of religious people who claim to have authority. Even I know some of you here today have been at churches where the pastors have used their authority in, in, in wrong ways, sinful ways to control people and try and get their own way. But this is not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's clear that a pastor's authority doesn't come from them, it comes from the Lord. He says, who are over you in the Lord. A pastor's authority is a delegated authority. Therefore, pastors don't have authority to control or manipulate people. They don't have a divine right to use the Bible to get what they want. Uh, they're not to use, actually, they're not to use their authority to serve themselves. Rather, their leadership is to be modeled after Jesus' leadership. So let me just show you one example. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10. Jesus, he calls his disciples to him and he says, this to them, he says this to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles 
lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever must be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that's what Jesus called himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus used his authority, his power, his position of leadership to serve others. Instead of coming to be served, he came to serve and to give his life for the, for, as a ransom for his people. So if you want to know what godly leadership looks like, good leadership looks like, look at the cross. That's true for bosses. It's true for parents and husbands and especially for pastors. Godly leadership is cross-shaped. And so if that doesn't describe your pastors, then you should probably find another church. However, if that does describe our pastors, then we should love and respect them. Thirdly, pastors lovingly admonish. At the end of verse 12 there, Paul says that pastors admonish. This word there has the sense of warning or instructing someone, not harshly, but in a brotherly tone. So pastors open up the Bible like this and they teach and rebuke and correct and warn people. And honestly, this is a difficult part of the job. It takes courage because we don't usually appreciate being corrected. Put up your hand if you like being corrected. No, me neither. We'd rather be affirmed than admonished. But good pastors love people enough to tell them hard things. Just like a good parent loves their child by telling them things they don't want to hear, so does a good pastor. So these are the three marks of a faithful pastor. They work hard, they humbly lead, they lovingly admonish. Paul says to not only respect these kinds of pastors, but to love them because of their work, verse 13. Now let me just say that I think this is something that our church does really well. So speaking on behalf of your pastors, I can say that we all feel very respected and loved for the work that we do. It's a joy to serve as a pastor at this church. There are so many ways that you all love us well. You pray for us. You send us encouraging emails and cards. You welcome us into your homes. You, you care for our families really well. You support some of us financially. You appreciate the work we do. You, you take your spiritual lives seriously and you love God's word. Some of you have even started supporting Liverpool Football Club, which is a great way to love me personally. It's just a, it's a joy to be a pastor at this church. Yes, there are hard days and weeks and even months, but I, I love being a pastor here. And so do Mike and Seth, so do Marty, Scott and Will. And I think that's because you respect and highly esteem us in love because of our work. But church leaders aren't the only people we ought to love. Secondly, we're to love one another. Look at verses 13 to 15. So Paul highlights three ways that we're to love one another. He tells us to pursue unity, provide care, and extend grace. So let's look at the first of those, pursue unity. Look at the end of verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, there are just loads of opportunities for disunity, aren't there? The church is made up of people who are very different. There are differences in politics, culture, and nationality. There are socioeconomic differences. There are differences in age and gender and temperament. 
We just have different preferences when it comes to things like entertainment and sports and fashion and even the kind of music and stuff we like to listen to in church or we like to sing. I mean, just logically, putting all of us lot in the same space is a recipe for disaster. It, it's, we should expect like a royal rumble to break out every Sunday. But the gospel unites us. Here's the message of Christianity. Jesus died for our sins to reconcile us to God. So in Jesus, we have peace with God. And that vertical peace we have with God creates a horizontal peace that we can enjoy with one another. So despite all of our many differences, we're united in a common faith. We're part of the same family even. Just notice how many times Paul uses the word brother in our passage. He uses it five times. It's the Greek word adelphoi, and it refers to siblings who are part of the same family. It can mean both brothers and sisters. And this is really shocking when you think about it, because remember who Paul is? He's a Jew writing to a church full of Gentiles. This would be like a former member of Hamas writing to an Israeli soldier. Jews and Gentiles were sworn enemies. They were not brothers. Yet the gospel breaks down every wall of hostility. God becomes our father and we become family. Of course, this doesn't just like magically happen. It requires intentionality and effort. And that's exactly why Paul has to instruct the Thessalonians to be at peace amongst one another. We have to work hard at loving people who are different than us. Secondly, provide care. Look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Notice that it's not simply the job of pastors to care for people. It's the job of everyone to care for one another. And Paul recognizes that different people need different care. So he highlights three types of people. He highlights the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. So the word idle there is a, was a military term. It referred to somebody who was out of step with the other soldiers marching in the rank. So idle might not be the best translation. A better translation might be disorderly or disruptive or unruly. Paul calls these people busybodies in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It seems that some of the people in Paul's day in this church were refusing to work. But it's not like they were super lazy. They were actually very busy. They were meddling in other people's business, gossiping and criticizing and arguing. They were prying into things that didn't actually concern them. Now, maybe it's difficult to know exactly what this might look like in our day and age. In our church, after all, this is Northern Virginia. People refusing to go to work doesn't seem to be a huge problem for us. But I do think technology makes it really easy to be a busybody, doesn't it? To pry into things that don't concern us. Even things like social media make it really easy to meddle in other people's business. Even people we don't even know, gossiping and criticizing and arguing. How are we to care for someone like this? Well, the temptation is to just ignore them or despise them. But Paul says we're to admonish them. Not harshly, but lovingly, like an older brother or an older sister, to help them to see how they're living out of step with God's word. Second group Paul singles out there is the faint-hearted. These are people who are fearful, discouraged, downcast. Maybe that'll describe you this morning. 
This is the person who is grieving the loss of a loved one or who's stuck in depression, who's paralyzed by anxiety, who's weighed down by suffering. You know, such people don't need to be admonished. Yeah, I think that's how religious people often treat the faint-hearted. You know, have more faith, cheer up, get a grip of yourself. But Paul says we're to encourage the faint-hearted. We're to encourage them with, with God's word and encourage them with service, encourage them with kindness and comfort. The third group Paul singles out is the weak. He probably means the physically weak. So either because they're ill, maybe have health problems, or because they have little, or they have little economic or social power. Again, it's easy to overlook such people, isn't it? To think, well... God helps those who help themselves. But actually, God helps those who can't help themselves. That's the gospel, isn't it? So Paul urges us to help the weak, to give them our time and energy and money to empower them, to serve them. And notice how Paul concludes at the end of verse 14. He says, and be patient with them all. The fact that Paul writes that at the end suggests that we're prone to be impatient with such people. Well, we like quick fixes and easy solutions, don't we? But we shouldn't put a time limit on helping people. We shouldn't just snap our fingers and expect people to get their act together. And we shouldn't give up when people are slow to change. After all, that's not how God treats us. Just think of how patient God has been with you in times of sin, times of despair, times of weakness. Just when we consider how patient God has been with us, that should just cause us to be patient with one another. So Paul wants us to pursue unity, provide care, and finally, he wants us to extend grace. Look at verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Paul just assumes that people are gonna wrong us, both people inside the church and even people outside the church. People will disappoint, offend, and hurt us. When that happens, the default mode of our heart is to return, return evil for evil, isn't it? That's, my, that's the default mode of my heart, is to seek vengeance, to, to, to give people what they deserve. However, the Bible repeatedly tells us to repay evil with good. To, we should give people better than what they deserve. Now, why on earth does the Bible tell us to live that way? Well, that's because that's what God is like. In fact, that is how God has treated us in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what we saw last week, wasn't it? In 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Or Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think all of this presents us with a great opportunity. You know, when you look around the world today, you don't see a whole lot of love, do you? You see a lot of division and tribalism and tit-for-tat hatred. But the church should be different. It should stand out as a community of love, a love shaped by the gospel. Again, I think by God's grace that we see this in our church. We're not obviously perfect in this way, but 
when I was thinking of our church this week, I, I, just, I just thought of all the different ways in which I see people pursuing unity despite their differences. I see people patiently providing care for those in need. I see people extending grace when they've been wronged. And hopefully you see that too. And if we do, we should praise God. So that's love. As we wait for the coming of Jesus, the church should be characterized by love. Secondly, faith in verses 16 to 22. The second virtue we should cultivate is faith. And Paul highlights two areas where our faith expresses itself. Prayer and the word of God. So let's start with prayer in verses 16 to 18. He tells us, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The Greek verbs here are all plural. So a good translation might be, y'all should rejoice, y'all should pray, y'all should give thanks. Or if you're Philadelphian or a scouser, we would say, you should rejoice, you should pray, you should give thanks. You know, this is something we do together. He tells us to rejoice in verse 16. Now look, this is not like a fake, happy, clappy optimism. He doesn't want us to be a bunch of Pollyannas. Remember, as we've been seeing, as we've worked our way through this book, this church was suffering greatly. And not only that, Paul himself was suffering greatly. In fact, many of us today are suffering greatly. Life is hard. Joy and happiness are not these things that we can just switch on and off like a switch. However, the gospel always gives us reason to rejoice, doesn't it? Even in the worst of times, the good news of Jesus still rings true. That means even in suffering, Christians can rejoice. We can rejoice in God's forgiveness, which never, never goes away, never changes. We can rejoice in God's love, which never ebbs and flows. We can rejoice that Jesus is returning, that that date on the calendar is never gonna be taken away. It's not penciled in, it's coming. Paul also tells us to pray without ceasing, verse 17. There's probably some hyperbole here. Paul knows that we need to sleep and do other things that are not prayer. The point is we should be a praying church. Prayer should be one of those things that characterizes our lives together. That's actually why we devote so much of our time to prayer in our gathering this morning. It's why we have a prayer service on Sunday evenings. It's why we pray together in elders meetings and small groups and men's and women's Bible studies. Still, I do think that if there's one area that we can grow in as a church from this passage, it's probably this area. We live in a world that strives for independence. Human beings like to think we're self-sufficient. And that's what makes prayer so countercultural because prayer is an expression of our utter dependence on God. And finally, Paul tells us to give thanks. So there's been a, a lot of scientific research done recently on the benefits of gratefulness. So Andrew Huberman, for example, he's a neuroscientist at Stanford University. He has the 14th most popular show on Apple Podcasts, and he devoted an entire podcast episode to the science of gratitude. You don't have to be religious to be thankful. However, to whom exactly are we to give thanks? Are we supposed to give thanks to an impersonal universe or random chance or lady luck? 
Well, we know that God is the giver of every good gift. James 1.17. Every blessing we received doesn't just come to us randomly, but it comes to us from the hand of God. And so Christians offer thanks, not just out into the atmosphere, but to God. So even when life is a dumpster fire, we can be thankful for our salvation. We can be thankful that Jesus is coming back to make all things new. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. At the end of verse 18, Paul says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is what God wants us to be doing as we wait for Jesus' return. So that's prayer. The second area faith expresses itself is our response to God's word. Look at verses 19 to 22. He says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, these verses are a little bit tricky to interpret. So there's some debate about what exactly Paul means by the term prophecies here. So a prophecy is a word from God. Prophecy is a word from God. Some people believe that prophecy ceased when the Bible was completed. So if we want to know prophecy, this is prophecy. They claim that everything we need to hear from God is found here. Other people believe prophecy continues to function in the life of the church today. So what I'd like to do is take the next six hours to dive into that debate. <laughs> now, actually, let's just, let's, just, let's just stick to what is clear. So Paul, Paul's point is he doesn't want us to despise the word of God. That's his big idea. That's what prophecy is. It's, it's the word of God. So when we hear the, a word from the Lord, we should accept it. So to reject God's word would be to quench the spirit, verse 19. After all, the spirit's the one who inspires God's word. Yet, and this is important, Paul doesn't want us to be gullible, right? There are loads of people in the world that claim to speak on behalf of God. But Paul doesn't think every voice is valid. This is why he says there, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The word Paul uses for good there was often used when you were trying to identify real from fake money. In other words, Paul's saying, you need to recognize a counterfeit. So how do we do that? Well, first of all, we need to know the Bible. We need to know what the Bible says. That way we can test everything against the Bible because this is our standard of truth. God will not contradict what he says in his word. Therefore, if anyone claims to speak on behalf of God, we need to examine the scriptures. Here's, and, and here's what this means practically. So if we hear a pastor preaching from the pulpit, including me, if, if you read a religious book, if you listen to a teacher on the internet, if you receive advice from a friend, whoever it is, if someone claims to have a word from the Lord, we need to be discerning. We need to test it against the gold standard of scripture. So if, if we despise God's word, we'll grieve the spirit However, if we mistake God's word, we'll be led into evil. Uh, this is, again, this is one of the reasons, uh, so, so this is one of the reasons Paul says at the end there in verse 27, he says this, right at the end of his letter, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. 
The, the New Testament letters were, were meant to be read by all the churches. That's actually why we're reading it this morning. That way we're all on the same page when it, came, when it comes to discerning the word of God. And again, this is why we place such a, a, a high importance on God's word in our church. It's why it's at the center of our church life. It's why we read the Bible multiple times in our service this morning. It's why I'm up here explaining the Bible instead of just giving you a, a, my opinion or a motivating TED talk. It's why even the lyrics in our songs are rich with biblical truth. As we wait for the coming of Jesus, we want to be a church that listens to the word of God because that's how our faith manifests itself. God's word is faithful and true, living and active. It's able to make us wise for salvation. And so we express our faith by holding fast to God's word. Okay, so that's faith. We've seen love, we've seen faith. Let's finish by seeing what Paul has to say about hope in verses 23 to 24. So up until now, this passage is exactly what we might expect to find in a religious text. A list of commands a bunch of rules, a load of moral advice. And maybe you feel a little bit overwhelmed, discouraged even. After all, it's, it's hard to love people, isn't it? You know, even on my best days, I struggle to love people. And then there's faith. Again, even on my best, best days, I am just so aware of the weakness of my faith. I, I'm aware that I my lack of prayer, my, my failure to trust God's word. And so maybe you are too. But hey, maybe, maybe this is what religion is about, making you feel guilty and crushed. Well, thankfully, I don't think that's what Christianity is about, and it's not what the, the message of this passage is either. Look what Paul says in verses 23 to 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you as faithful, he will surely do it. So Paul ends his letter with a benediction. A benediction is a prayer of hope and encouragement, but it's a special kind of prayer. It's the kind of prayer that brings about its intended result. It's like a proclamation of what God will do for his people. Just imagine a second that Paul had ended his letter like this. Now may you sanctify yourself completely. He who calls you is serious. You better do it. I mean, how crushing and anxiety-inducing would that be? But Paul has good news for us. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. He who calls you as faithful, he will surely do it. I mean, what a, what a relief. You know, what a weight off our shoulders. This whole thing does not depend on us. And this is why Christianity is actually good news. So every other religion in the world teaches that you must do it. You must earn divine blessing. But Christianity is unique. The thing God demands of us is actually given to us in the gospel. He demands that we be holy. That's what that word sanctify means. It means to be blameless, to be perfect like Jesus. 
God's standards are higher than we think. Turns out being better than the terrorists on the news is not enough. Being more moral than your coworkers is not enough. Being nicer than your family members is not enough. God requires perfection. And so where is our hope? It cannot be in ourselves. It can't be down to us. If the message of Christianity is you must do it, then we're all doomed. But praise God, the very thing that he requires is given to us as a gift in the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is this. You and I have sinned against God. Instead of recognizing him as Lord of our lives, we have rebelled against him. So we haven't loved him with our entire being. We haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. Therefore, the Bible says we're God's enemies. There's hostility between us and God. There's not peace, there's war. But here's the good news. On the cross, Jesus died for our sin. He was judged in our place. He took the punishment that our sins deserved. Therefore, Jesus has, um, God has reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ. We are no longer at war with God. If you believe that good news this morning, then there's now peace between you and God. Look what Paul says in Romans 5.1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified, that means made right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness has been bestowed. We now have peace with God. And this is the only way we can have peace with God, by the way. We can't have it through our own moral effort. We can't have it by keeping religious rules. We can't, we, we can't have it by just being a good person and going to church more and praying and going through uh, whatever kind of religious rules we think will somehow earn us God's favor. No, apart from Jesus, we're condemned in our sin. There's actually no hope for us. Yet in Jesus, by faith in him, we have peace with God. So if you want peace with God this morning, and if you don't currently have that, you can have it right now by trusting in Jesus, by believing in Jesus, by receiving him as your savior, as the one who died for your sins. But this, this God doesn't simply save us. He doesn't simply give us a get out of hell free card. No, he sanctifies us, Paul says. He transforms us. He makes us like himself. Look again at verse 23. He says, God will sanctify us completely, spirit, soul, and body. He says, when Jesus returns, we'll be blameless. There'll be no more imperfections. God's gonna clean us up and he won't miss a spot. Christian, a day is coming when you'll no longer feel guilt and shame. You'll no longer make mistakes or fall short. You'll no longer live in regret or wallow in failure. You no longer wish that that thing about you was different. No, God will sanctify you completely. This is our hope. This is our hope. Now, don't mishear me when I use that word hope, right? So when I was, when I was younger, my dad, right, who's a really good cook, would sometimes plan to grill outside, okay? We call it, we'll have a barbecue. That's what we say in England. We'll have a barbecue, we'll invite people around, and we'll grill outside. So my dad had planned to do that, maybe over the weekend, and I always remember him hearing him saying, I hope it doesn't rain. But of course, this was England. <laughs> and so the weather seldom cooperated. Our hopes were often dashed. 
Now, biblical hope is not like British hope, okay? It's not a wishful pipe dream or a cross your fingers and hope for the best. No, it's a certain hope, a confident hope, an unshakable hope. It's a hope guaranteed by the historical life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a hope that we can have because the tomb is empty. Friends, this is, there is a date on our calendars. It's a date when the Lord Jesus returns. If you don't know Jesus, then that day should stress you out. However, it doesn't have to be that way. Come to Jesus this morning and God promises to present you blameless on that day. And for those of us who have received Christ, this is who we are to be as we wait for his coming. We're to cultivate love, faith, and hope. But we're not to cultivate those things in our own strength. No, we can, we can do so knowing that he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel that you sent your son to live, die, and rise again to save us from our sins. And so we thank you that we, by faith in him, we can have hope for that day when he returns and that you'll present us blameless before him. There'll be no more sin, guilt, or shame. Not because we're good people, not because we've cleaned up our act, and not because we've kept a bunch of religious rules, but because you are faithful. And we'll be able to declare on that day, you have surely done it. We thank you and we praise all these, pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.